You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. G'day guys, Trent Fleskins here, your host as always. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. Today's topic is the most technical topic I think we have had all year. It's a tough one for even myself to get my head around, so we need our tax expert in, it's Carlo Bordi, to talk about GST margin schemes and that how that applies to small-scale developers. Carlo, thanks a lot for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Carlo, let's kick it off with a general explanation as to what the GST margin scheme is and why it applies to us. Margin scheme is basically an altered calculation on calculating the GST on a transaction. So what happens is for GST to apply, there must be deemed a business transaction, especially when you're dealing with property compared to it being an investment. Under the margin scheme calculation, there are a lot of scenarios where people buy property and the person they're buying the uh, property from are not required to be registered for GST or they're not registered for GST. Um, You could be a mum and dad selling their house with a large block and uh, no GST applies on that transaction for the person that's selling it. But if you're a property developer, you have to then consider whether uh, it is an enterprise and as an enterprise, then the GST will apply. And because you haven't been able to claim back the full GST on the transaction, it actually gets catered for when you end up selling that property. So really, I suppose, in understanding that concept, you've got to look at uh, when does the margin scheme actually apply? When does GST apply? A lot of people would be surprised that GST would apply at all to the sale of sale or purchase of their properties, even in a small-scale development. And, and again, the commissioner is... Uh, specific on that but being specific he's also vague he virtually says it's deemed when it's a business transaction or an enterprise now an enterprise can be a, a one-off transaction and i'm going to go maybe through and give us some examples maybe to answer that further on in this presentation so it, it's a bit more clear but i think we just need to look at the mechanics first to see how do, you know how does this margin scheme actually apply so you're looking at first of all there must be a gst transaction which is dealing with property that the ATO deems to be a business transaction and not a capital investment. This can be um, when you have a situation where the main drive is a profit-making scheme. So development, cutting up land, renovations. Again, the, the definitions you've just thrown at me are, are, are varied. Uh, a renovation, the, com- the commissioner deems that if you buy a second-hand residential property and you renovate it, and you can do major renovations, even to the extent of... Uh, from a single story making it a double story and and knocking down significant walls and and completely changing the layout, they still deemed a a minor renovation and that's simply deemed as an investment and not subject to GST, which seems really strange. So you could get an old dilapidated house and pretty much, you know, fix it right up and make it look smicko. For profit. Um, and look, ultimately the game of any property, whether you buy a rental property or whatever, is, is and I tell clients, if you don't ultimately make a profit at the end of buying a rental property, if you're simply buying for negative gearing, um, you're not achieving a lot, you're just losing money. So ultimately, you always want to make a profit. But is your initial intent to keep it as a long-term investment or simply to turn it over to make a dollar? Quickly. So, well, then quickly, in most cases, you're looking at mainly having a GST scenario and, uh, and more than likely a margin scheme calculation applicable to that transaction. That's the key point here. And it can be vague. It can be... It's deemed to be subjective here, but it's intent, isn't it? The word is intent, and the ATO will look at you and look at the way that you've purchased the property, how quickly you've gone to develop it, or whatever you've done with it to try and make profit. If they deem that your intent 
is to run a profit-making scheme, then regardless of whether you own it in a company or in a personal name, you will be hit with a GST applicable transaction, right? Yeah, the, the, the structure you're adopting has no impact on discounting for GST. It's simply taxed in a different name. So that'll hit you either way. You're running a business, whether it's your personal name or a trust or a company, a corporate trustee, you're running a business. And that's where I think a lot of people, they fall down. They think, oh, if I'm putting in a company, then I will be hit with GST. If I'm not being a company, then I'm not, it's not a business. Structure doesn't doesn't deem your intent. But you've also got to be careful when you do buy property. A lot of the times, uh, you've got to try and avoid the company structures because if you buy a property with a long-term intent of holding it, and it is actually an investment property, companies don't get any discount. So, you know, that's another topic to discuss at another point in time. But, yeah, look, your structure does not give any any leeway or discount for the GST or the margin scheme calculations. Okay, so to summarise the last couple of minutes, it doesn't matter how you've bought that property in whichever name, GST will be applicable to the sale of your development in the future if the ATO deems that you've gone and run a business for a profit-making scheme. And there, I guess, are a couple of tests about the length of time as well uh, regarding that, Carlo. You're correct. In relation to your structure, has no impact. In relation to time, a classical example I can give you is if a person was, as an individual, to buy a property, as, a, as an old residential property from, from a husband and wife, and this property's got subdivisible abilities, now, if you acquire that property, and while settlement's happening on that property, if you start uh, putting applications into a carve-up with the intent of selling it, well, then you're obviously showing the commission that, hey, my intent is here to, to sell this straight away. And the commission will then deem that to be a profit-making scheme, even though it's, a, it's an enterprise and, and, and one, maybe one-off, it's still an enterprise subject to GST. And then because you bought it off Mr. and Mrs. who are not registered for GST, you can adopt the margin scheme on that block of land. And if you then, for some reason, keep the house at the front and you um, you you rent it well then if you keep it for more than 12 months then there is no gst implications on this property irrespective of whether you keep it for a week or 12 months but if you keep it for more than 12 months you're entitled to 50 percent discount on a capital gains calculation so here's an example where you can buy one property and you're subject to two different legislations one being the gst and the margin scheme and one being capital gains and the 50 percent discount entitlements so the gst would be on the sale of the land at the back Correct, correct. And then if you hold the property at the front for more than 12 months? Then, well, you can actually, upon selling second-hand residential property, no GST applies on second-hand residential property. But if you keep it for more than 12 months, and when I say keep it for more than 12 months, it's from date of often acceptance when you buy it to the date of often acceptance when you sell it. That's much succeed 12 months to be entitled to a 50% discount on, uh, on that sale. So that isn't that interesting how two pieces... And people can get caught out very easily with that. What about if we knocked that house down and built two houses on there? As soon as you demolish a, a residential property, you're no longer dealing with the same asset. So now you're dealing with a, a parcel of land. And so if you build two new houses on there, again, it depends on what your intent is. If you intend building it and putting two uh, rental properties on there, well, then again, there's no, there's no GST that applies. Or not until you sell them. No, if you if you build them as res, as rental properties and actually do rent them out, then the commissioner then deems they are investment properties and um, they're subject to capital gains. However, what's happening in this market is people build these properties with the intent and the full intent of renting it, and they try and get tenants or whatever, um, and, and they have difficulties, and then they try and sell it. And then you might get a combination where they build two properties, they sell one, which has never been rented, and they keep the other one, and they end up renting one. 
Well, unfortunately, the one that's been developed and sold and never lived in, that's new residential, that's subject to GST, and then the margin scheme would apply. Um, and and full profits tax as well. Well, yeah, so uh, under, under the, uh, the uh, GST scenario, with this, with this uh, sale of a new house, whatever it's cost you to build, um, inclusive of the land and its value, compared to what you sell it for, that would be your profit after you've calculated your GST. And uh, where it becomes a little bit tricky is if a person initially doesn't intend to, um, to sell the property, but is enforced to, you've got to then go back and backdate all your applications and say, listen, I should have claimed all my expenses on all my GST, on my development, on my cost. And you can do that, and the commissioner will allow you to do that. Um, and then when you sell the property, the most crucial part of the sale is your actual informing the buyer that the seller is going to be using the margin scheme, and the way to do that is on the offer and acceptance. One tick of a box, Carlo, isn't it? Well, it, technically, it, it is It is one little tick, which then refers to an, an annexure, which then refers to a schedule, and then that schedule is going to be part of your offer and acceptance. And if you don't tick that one box, I mean, I can give an example where, you know, if you buy something for, and if you use just simple figures, if you buy something, say, $110,000, and you turn around and sell it for $170,000, um, under the margin scheme, if you tick that box, the difference is 60 grand. And it's pretty much that simple. What did you buy it for compared to what did you sell it for? 60 grand. The GST is $4,555. If you don't tick that box, the GST is one eleventh of the $170,000, which is a big difference. Yeah, a big difference in cash flow. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's no way of avoiding it. This legislation's been in now since, um, since 2000, and it's been reinforced since 2006. There was some leeway previously. Now they're virtually saying, it's, hey, it's been in for 19 years. If you don't get it right now, you uh, simply got to pay the full GST on it and get no discount under the margin scheme. Yeah, it's as simple as that box being ticked. Yeah, most definitely. You were referencing how if you start renting these properties out, you become an investor, not a developer, and you therefore aren't uh, hit with GST application. Surely there's a time frame there, Carlo, as to it can't be for three weeks. It has to be for a certain amount of time. Well, the commission actually looks at a lot of different things. They look at, are you in the business of developing? Do you do this on a one-off scenario? Do you have, do you have multiple on, on, on the trot? And, and if a person's in the business of doing this, well, then you've virtually got to keep your rental properties, if you're a developer and developing multiple properties, for a minimum of five years. So, for the, But for the average Joe Blow, who simply does a one-off scenario, and has the intent of, of retaining them and does retain them and for some reason gets caught up in this, gee, I have to sell one, I have to keep one scenario. Well, as soon as they've sold that property, they should deregister from GST and then the second property is not subject to this five-year legislation unless the commissioner deems that they're in the business of doing property development. So mm. mum and dad do one-off scenario, one, one property development, unlikely the commissioner would, uh, would then deem them to be a, a, a property developer and uh, they'd be um, tied to the two different legislations. Well, let's just say they kept both of them in this example and they rented them out for two years, recognised that they were at the top of the market, thought this is a good time to sell them both and then sold them both two years from developing it. How would that look? If it's a one-off scenario, I think the commission would be unlikely to apply them to be an enterprise and a business. And I suppose to clarify that, a lot of people are, the un are under the misconception that their own house is always tax-free. And under most scenarios, that, that is correct. However, if a person builds a house, year later sells it, builds another house, year later sells it, and does that on a regular basis. Lives in it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. it's their own home. Um, the commission can deem that 
they are actually doing that as a, as an enterprise, and that could be subject to uh, to at least capital gains tax. In You'd that, be unlucky, wouldn't you? Well, it, it's not regular, but that's the full extent of the legislation. I mean, uh, it applies to even those scenarios. Well, yeah. let's go into. I think we've had a good background as to the GST applicability, whether this uh, next few minutes applies to people or not. Uh, can you explain into more detail the mechanics? of the margin scheme, exactly how it's calculated with reference to all the costs that are involved in a development. And believe it or not, the calculation of the margin scheme is very, very simple. When you purchase a parcel of land, let's say, and let's use a a land as an example. So you buy a parcel of land, it can be subdivided into say nine lots, but you decide to sell that just as a parcel of land again. Uh, So you're buying it and you're selling it and you're trading in land. And, and let's say that the land costs you a million dollars and you then you turn around and sell it for to two million dollars uh, two years later. But your intent is always is a profit-making scheme and you are registered for GST or required to be registered for GST for whatever reasons. Then the commissioner then looks at that and says, all right, the difference between what you bought it for compared to what you sell it for, exclusive of stamp duty, agent's fees, interest, subdivisional cost, everything's excluded. It's simply... On your offer and acceptance, how much did you buy it for? On your offer and acceptance when you sell it, how much are you selling it for? And you subtract one figure from the other and you divide that by 11. It's that pretty much that simple. There are no other mechanics to it. All the other costs are then taken into account in relation to, okay, I've, I've remitted my GST on this transaction. The million dollar difference between one million and two million, I remit my 90 odd thousand dollars to the commissioner. The difference then is what I've made on it, exclusive of GST. And that figure there is then decreased by all your other costs, like your agents' fees and interest and rates and taxes, etc. Why then, do you think the ATO has created this margin scheme? What was the purpose of it? Revenue raising. Uh, GST was originally introduced as a tax to counter the, the cash flow economy in a lot of transactions where people and contractors are working, they're registered for GST now. The commission's thinking, well, at least I'm getting something out of you in relation to GST. And that's obviously flowed through to property because uh, it's uh, simply an enterprise. But how does it differ to that first example you gave of someone not ticking the box? At the end of the day, they're going to remit their GST from the costs they've had along the way. They're going to pay GST on the sale of that piece of land at the end of the day. Can you explain how functionally that way that we normally remit and receive GST credits is different to the margin scheme? New legislation came into play a couple of years ago and previously the margin scheme is simply, as I said before, the difference between what you buy something and what you sell it. But what a lot of people were doing, um, and, and there's case law on this, were setting up a specific company structure that weren't paying the GST, then they were deregistering this structure, and the structure doesn't exist anymore, and the commission was having great difficulty in collecting the GST. So what they've done now, they've become a lot uh, more, more prudent. That was called phoenixing, right? Yeah, and there's a couple of, it was a Phoenix scenario, yes. Um, So what the commission is doing now, he's virtually putting the onus of the GST on the person buying the property. So when you sign your contract, by ticking the box, then the purchaser um, has to be notified that the margin scheme has been adopted. The purchaser's agent then is required to retain a portion of the gross um, value that the property has been purchased for, and that percentage is 7%. So the, the actual purchaser's agent remits 7% of the gross proceed to the ATO 
and the ATO has got some money. And then the vendor can then step back and the purchaser then has to step in and says to the commissioner, well, this is the actual calculation. You've got a notional figure there for my um, margin scheme uh, GST uh, figure. He, that's uh, arbitrary. Now this is the actual figures and they square up. In most instances, the ATO is overcollected and will refund the difference. Uh, but if you're a bit short, well, then you just make up uh, the difference with the ATO. So it's essentially the ATO's way of getting their money before the company is deregistered and doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's just a safeguard to the collecting of the dollars. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense, I think, to a lot of people out there wondering why is it done this way? Uh, it's a very good example of how it used to be that easy to be able to essentially disappear before tax time came. Oh, and, and the big boys, some of the big boys used to be doing this. This um, was to the extent of many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars that the HO missed out on, wasn't it? Oh, look, there, there are certain developers out there who, who uh, for every project they do, they actually set up a different company structure and uh, they do multiple transactions and multi-million dollar transactions. So, yeah, most definitely. Yep. And unfortunately, it's a small fries that end up um, copping the short end of the stick, uh, like anything else. And this legislation is very uh, proactive for the ATO. Not so good for the for the individual, but because uh, a lot of times the, the G's down the margin scheme is only minimal. So then collecting 7%. Is in most cases a gross over a gross over calculation and a gross over, but then it's up to the other person to put their paperwork in and support. Get it back. Uh, yeah. So yeah. as a summary, Carlo, everyone that is doing a knockdown development or carving up land, even if it's a retain and split, whether you're in a company or your own name, is subject to GST on the sale of those new assets they've created. Yes. In most says yes, other than if you retain a second-hand residential property. But and then uh, anything that you retain that second-hand, that side of the equation would be a probably not. Correct. And possibly open to the 50% discount if you hold that for over, for over a year. In most instances, yes. Yep. And if you are going about doing knockdown developments, triplexes, duplexes, corner lots on a regular basis eventually if not from straight away a uh, rule will be that you will be deemed to be a developer until you've rented these properties out for a five-year period at which that point gst would no longer be applicable and you could seek a 50 percent discount on your capital gains ultimately correct and probably the most important thing to take away from this little session is the fact that one it is complex and, and you should speak to your accountant in relation to these transactions but two, you mentioned about ticking a box. You must always make sure that uh, if you're uncertain as to whether GST and the margin scheme applies in your scenario, because if you fail to tick that one little box, it's a very expensive exercise. What if you do tick it and you actually you shouldn't have? Look, ultimately, if, if that's incorrect, the commission has retained 70% of your proceeds. You then have to then support that uh, that doesn't apply and you'd get it refunded. Yeah, it would take a while and a bit of a stuff around. The HR will always... Um, Do yeah. the right thing. Well, ultimately, but they're, they're, sometimes they are a little bit tardy. They, you know, they are, uh, I mean, I've had situations where there's been a clear-cut scenario and it's taken three or four months after the, the bass has been lodged for it to be refunded. But uh, look, ultimately it does come, does come back, but you're trying to avoid that scenario if you can. Yep. Carlo, uh, I think the biggest message for me today and for everyone uh, listening every week this is probably the best example I have for everyone out there that you need to speak and to and use the right professionals, especially when you're dealing with property development. Uh, this is something that even myself, I say I, I would think I'd be about 70% across, 
but not confident enough to sit there across the table with my clients and be 100% on it because it's just such a complex part of the legislation piece. So uh, make sure you're talking to your tax accountant. If it's not Carlo Bordi, who is my personal accountant, make sure it's uh, someone else who uh, knows his stuff. Carlo, thank you very much for coming in today. We'll have you in again soon. Thank you. All right, suburb spotlight time. We are talking about Melville, not the city of Melville specifically, but the suburb of Melville, pegged in right there between Myrie and Palmyra, uh, Canning Highway and Leach Highway, north and south. One agent to talk to, as always, it's the number one agent, it's Michael Jennings. Michael, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Trent. Michael, I've been asking this question a bit lately. Can you sum up your suburb? in a sentence. I've been listening to uh, neighbouring suburbs recently that you've been featuring, Adderdale and Willoughby, um, Alfred Cove a little bit and Myrie. Uh, I think Melville sits solidly in the middle of those from a lifestyle perspective, from a price point perspective uh, and probably from a demographics perspective as well. So um, is it typical West Australian? Without sounding too boring, it's it's pretty Anglo at Melville. Um, <laughs> it's pretty consistent. I'm a, a classic example of, of, of a resident in Melville, two kids, um, young family, looking to establish themselves in an area where they can grow. Is it an accessible suburb in terms of price points? Generally, we're not going to we're not we're going to talk about that later in terms really mm. getting into the numbers. But is it an every man suburb? Something for everyone? I think it depends what you're coming from, doesn't it? Without being too um, too specific or generalised. Uh, when you look at the median house price in Melville, which we'll chat about later, it's it's in that sort of mid to high sevens. For for most families, look, let's be realistic. It's not a first home buyer's territory. It's not Auburn Grove, Atwell, Success, Hammond Park, those areas. It's it's probably a, a second dwelling and dual income family that can afford to live in the area. Certainly, if you have aspirations for that second home, Melville could easily be that goal. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it, it's a nice in between type price point for buyers and what's it offering uh, look it offers proximity to Frio without sounding like a broken record with 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 other agents that have been on here but if you put a pin on on the map Melville's five minutes from Frio Garden City there um, you can quickly duck down to the river uh, and for commuters getting up to the city there's a few really good transport arteries that lead that way well, you've got both highways don't you yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We've got a, a very busy one in Leach Highway and we've got Marmion Street obviously through the middle and Canning Highway that, that borders it. You referenced the family suburb, that young family suburb. Where are you sending kids to primary school and high school as options if you're living in Melville, if you're a Melville family? Melville Primary has become a really desirable public school. Uh, it gained its independent status a few years ago. It's really well resourced. It's got a really lovely um, sort of nature orientated setting i do a lot of work with with the school so i know intimately the, the programs that they run so there's definitely more of a focus on people moving into the area for the primary school having said that the high schools come on leap and leaps and bounds the the amount of families that were were outsourcing to to private schools through the area has gone down and they've got some great specialist programs with the aviation and the um, some of the academic streams as well I did understand that myself as well in terms of mm. noble high school wasn't the best reputation 10 15 years ago most kids that I knew that lived around there, they'd be going to a summer, well, back then, a Somerville or Winthrop mm. or heading to, if they could, another private school, independent school. But you're saying now there are people who are actually getting quite interested in those programs and it's, it's picked up. Yeah, I think it's running at about 55% of families that will send their kids, that live in Melville, that will send their kids to the high school and the rest will filter off to Santa Maria and... Uh, Aquinas and CBC and some of the other uh, private schools. But ironically, Melville um, Senior High covers Bicton, Adderdale, uh, Myrie. It's a very large catchment, which has brought diversity, Willoughby included. 
but certainly I think with with the demographic moving into Melville, particularly in the last five or six years, it's absolutely, you know, undeniably going to become a pretty desirable public catchment school. Do you see a lot of people moving into the area for the impending Garden City Boragoon update? Uh, not since AMP put it on the back burner a few months ago, <laughs> but certainly it was something that we were talking about without sort of you've got to choose your dialogue carefully when talking about things like shopping things centers and happening. potential subdivisions yeah. and things like that but garden city is is in need of an overhaul it's a very congested really well used shopping center but i think there's a slight delay on that now buyers what's mm. a typical buyer is it that person that family you've just described yeah i look i'd say seven or eight out of ten homes that we sell through melville are to that typical young family that would have two kids possibly three on top of that there are young professional couples that are are looking for that you know nice three by one that they can grow into and put a second bathroom in we do have an old underbelly of owners in melville it's a pretty established old suburb so there is that downsizer that's looking to stay within the area but from an affordability perspective they are being squeezed out are there many investors buying into melville only for the development sites yeah we're not seeing investors picking up units um, well, i certainly haven't old. in the last few yeah. years um, first home buyers and and investors have obviously disappeared from the Perth market in the last period but certainly the duplex and the triplex blocks as rare as they are seem to be going very quickly still in Melville. Would I be right in assuming that the seller is a mixture of that one home owner who's moving out of the suburb generally or the family whose kids have now gone through high school and are moving on and upwards? Or downwards? Yeah, I think I think you'd be spot on. Uh, I, I think the only other seller within that is is maybe the suburb transitional seller. Uh, the agent from Adderdale spoke about it last week. Melville, there is a lot of transition from Melville to Adderdale to Bicton, uh, from Palmyra to Melville and likewise the other way. So it's it's firmly sat between a lot of suburbs that offer a similar lifestyle. But yeah, I think you'd be pretty, pretty spot on with your summary. So is it a pretty insular wing? Is it something where you would start at one suburb and aspire to move up into another suburb or and then move back down as you retire? We all like our wings of Perth normally you're a north or a south or an east or a west is that where most of your buyers and sellers are cycling through if i can say it that way yeah i think the majority of buyers that buy in melville live quite close um so whether they're in melville itself or in a in a southern pocket suburb that offers the same lifestyle there is a a growing number of buyers i'm finding coming into melville from the southern catchment more specifically auburn grove atwell success and i've mentioned those areas before but it seems like that's quite a trend, and I think it's school-driven and also commuting-driven. A lot um, of people with that reality, they get sold the beautiful marketing and lifestyle living in these brand-new suburbs and then get ground down day after day after day on the extremely long and arduous drive up the freeway. Yeah, I, I, and I've heard you guys talk about it on here a, a bit, and no disrespect to those suburbs, you, you can get a lot more for your money. But certainly, I, th- I think it's probably the schooling pool, to be honest. It's one of the great ones. Um, the commutes got worse and worse, but as the infrastructure down there improves, that, that might be diluted. We hope, yeah. Mm. But for me, my perspective on it, we're always going to be chasing our tail. Every time mm. we have a government put infrastructure money into that freeway, it's a one political election cycle level of infrastructure. And by that time, we have another couple of estates built and filling up that next lane of the highway of the freeway it's it's for me it's never going to be a situation at least on the quinana freeway uh, where they're going to have more than enough capacity to cover the people that are continually being pushed in there so the closer you can get 
to the city to the closer train stations mm. Uh, mm. where there's already that established and filled out m- pretty much maximized level of density other than levels of subdivision uh, the more value I think you're going to have as a lifestyle choice which mm. circulates into values for properties at the end of the day mm. yeah look, we're, we're, lo- we're longer than LA now as an urban sprawl I think Perth is now from north to south the uh, longest city in the world which creates big problems but we're a coastal city as well aren't we let's talk about price points specifically mm. Let's buy in at the cheapest price I can buy from Michael Jennings. What am I getting? Uh, you, you're probably getting a two-bedroom, uh, one-bathroom unit in a group of 16, 18 on Canning Highway. Uh, that's probably not renovated around that mid to high twos mark. Uh, those that's 40 price, years old? Yeah, yeah, late 70s, early 80s. And that price point's come back sharply. Units have been probably the hardest hit of all the property types in Melville in the last few years. Um, so you would have been paying you know, 350 400 for that same product. Isn't that funny? On a city basis, it's the lower end of the market that's been hit the hardest. Mm. But even on a suburban basis, it's Mm. the lower end of the suburb that's Mm. really been hit the hardest in terms of percentage uh, drops. Mm. Mm. I wonder why that is. Yeah, well, I I think it it has to be due to the the two buyer pools just retracting from the market in that first home buyer sense and, and investors. But if you look at the the shift from you know the value of a family home in the last four or five years, is not much. Oh, I think in those solid family stronghold suburbs, mm. of which I would have thought Melville is one of those, uh, that's where we see good examples of, yes, whilst we see median house prices across the state dropping, there are actually housing types and in particular suburbs where things haven't moved at all. In fact, I've said this before, of the 200 suburbs in Perth, as per CoreLogic's data, 50 of them have actually grown on average in the last five years. Mm. Now, mm. not many people would recognize that. Most mm. people would think it was five, mm. if anything, right? Mm. A quarter of Perth has actually gone up in the last five years. No one talks about it because the median is so skewed by the volume at the bottom end. Mm. Now, a suburb like Melville, mm. which I would uh, equate to a suburb like Kareen or Duncraig or something like that in the north, mm. you've got so much reason to live there because of the amenities around town uh, that most people are sticking around mm. for starters. Mm. Uh, and therefore, they're not selling because they have to. They don't have to because they're not in negative equity. They're not losing their jobs. A lot of them are just getting on with life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we, we either have people that are transitioning. Well, look, nine out of 10 of our properties that we're selling are because uh, they're buying. They're, they've seen something in the market, whether it's in Melville or, or next door, uh, that they want to buy. So no one's selling for fun. Uh, and you're right, people are sticking put. Uh, what's next in terms of price points? Up from the bottom end. Yeah. Uh, look, you're probably then going to a, a three-by-one villa in a group of four. Um, previously, they would have been high fours. Now we're looking at low fours. Um, some of them tarted up into the mid fours. Um, so we're in first-home owner territory still? Yeah, I guess, yeah, we are. stamp duty. Yeah, we are. We're in first-home buyer territory. There is a, a sort of a, a slight downsizing demographic that will that will purchase those, um, but they have to be close to bus stops and, and shops. Yep, next. Mm. Next up from that would probably be your, your three by one sort of quintessential character 50s built home that hasn't been done up, maybe on four, 450 square metres. Um, what will swing that property type is is where it sits within the suburb. So if you're going down Holman Street, Kennedy, Le Monde, Money Road, up through those sections, you're probably going to be paying closer to, to six, 650 for that product. Um, whereas in some uh, areas that may not be as tightly held, you're looking around that five to 550 mark. Okay. Have these been subdivided to be on that size block in the first place? Yeah, the the, the, the normal full-size block within Melville um, is around that 900 square metre mark. There's some sections where it tips 1,000. 
and then there's some side streets that run off Marmie Street that are closer to the 800 mark that can't be split unless they've had a zoning change. But most of the that what we call the half blocks will sit between that 450 and 480 square metres. So these are the front of a house behind a house development? Correct, yeah. yeah. So it's where the house has been retained at the front, although we're obviously, obviously seeing a lot more of those homes knocked over with the side-by-side 10-metre frontage subdivisions. There's a lot of value in those. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, next up. Next up from your, your three by one would, would probably be that, that same product, but with a second bathroom added on. So with some investment from the owner, maybe sort of a hundred grand on the original, and then you're taking it up to probably that mid sevens, low to mid sevens. That's starting to get up there, isn't it? First, a subdivided piece of land with an older house. There's not many that come to market because most people just see inherent land in the value and will knock that front house out. And some of the, you know, the better character extended homes are, are families that want the full block and have pushed it out and enjoy the space. So what am I paying for a family home, Michael? It, sound, it sounds like it's starting to get up there. Uh, well, there's two types of family homes in Melville. There's either the that that product that's been pushed out on, say, 800 square metres with a 3 by 2 or a 4 by 2 um, For that product, you're looking anywhere probably from 950 to 1.15. Um, I've had two in the last year that have gone close to that 1.2, so 1195 and a few other agents that have Are they sold achieved... as development opportunities? No, they're not. They're sold okay. as families that, um, that like Melville, appreciate the, the primary school, maybe don't have 1.35 to spend in Victon or some parts of Adderdale uh, or East Freo and are really content with, with the space. Okay. Yeah. And then I assume it's starting to get into the mid ones. What are you getting for that? We don't really have a mid one price point. So the other family type of home I was going to reference is probably that brand new family home, which is still on 500 square metres and around that 1.1 mark. And there's a cluster of properties like that providing there. Is that the side by side? Um, side by side, predominantly, yeah. Unless it's a corner block or a really nice rear home. But the mid ones, Mark, we don't really have a common transaction in that price point. There'll be the occasional one. There was a property on the corner of Head Street and Williams Road that's transacted a couple of times and that was at 1.75, which for Melville is is obviously Massive. right up there. Yeah. But the way that I explain it to buyers and sellers when we get up to that 1.3 to 1.4 mark, no disrespect to Melville. I'd live in Melville and love Melville, so I'm a bit biased, but we have to be realistic. Buyers in that price point are probably going to go for an area like Bicton, on the river. Uh, East Freer, where, where you can literally... Um, throw your car away and just walk yeah Uh, and that's that's a real good point that you've made there michael where we always have to be reminding ourselves both as buyers and as sellers is what else is on the market that we're competing with it's so easy to just act in isolation Mm. think about well that one went for this price therefore mine has got an extra of this and that and therefore mine's worth an extra 200 grand Mm. but then Mm. you have to start asking yourself what else could the buyer get for that extra 200 grand Mm. Mm. That could be just a toy, and it's not just in terms of the product mm. location comes in very mm. quickly, mm. and not even within that isolated suburb. We start going, oh, for the 1.3, 1.4, I could be in that, exactly. that suburb I yeah. never thought I could get into. Yeah, no, exactly. I think Melville at times, the price point for Melville has got sort of uncomfortably close to Bicton, East Freo, and Adderdale for the residents of Adderdale, Bicton, and East Freo. And then those three tend to just go on a little bit of a skip. So it's a definitely, it's a common dialogue that I have with, particularly with owners in Melville. We want to push the price up within each suburb, but there's a, there is a, an order to it as well. I think what we're scratching the surface of today is a much bigger conversation about the micro-macro relationship on suburban price points that we've never spoken about on this podcast before is how different suburbs relate to each other mm. and push prices left and right regardless of the house itself. Mm. That's a much bigger it's conversation. probably another conversation. Yeah, now. it's a really interesting <laughs> yeah. conversation to have yeah, though because yeah. what we're doing is we're starting to uh, really 
recognize as buyers and sellers as well the relationship between suburbs even mm. if you're never going to live in another suburb, it's just how they all affect each other. Mm. Mm. Uh, you can see that one suburb, like a victim or an Adderdale, would consider itself quite depressed right now, mm. which is just going to put a cap mm. on how Melville goes. It's just how it is. Right? Exactly, yeah. Even yeah. if Melville has a whole bunch of new fundamentals coming through, it, by law, should never really mm. exceed mm. or come into the same space as Adderdale or Victim just because of the location. Mm. I think one of those things that maybe changes that over time, and this is more of a historical conversation, but looking at areas like Rossmoyne and Williton is probably the school and how school within a su- within a suburb progresses its its value compared to the ability to walk to the beach or walk to the river. Um, and, and, and I see Melville High doing that. It's probably a few years away from propelling at that extra 3 or 4% where we sit behind the others, but I think it will happen. Really, really good commentary there. Let's talk about subdivision. Interesting one, Melville. It's yeah. got some opportunity. It's not really on the radar of most people when we're talking about subdivision, both because, one, it's not the cheapest suburb to get into to do a development for starters. Mm. But, two, it's not like it's a suburb that's rampant with development However, it does have opportunity. Hit us with an understanding of the zoning and what people have been doing the last 15 years. Well, look, the, the, the development side of it's probably changed dramatically in the last four or five years since um, the city of Melville went for their big urban infill push and Melville was one of those hotspots between Canning Bridge and, and Freer that they had to find a whole load of um, new dwellings. So areas of Melville um, went to R40. Um, through the city of Melville, this is probably old news for some people, but the ability to subdivide a block that was 855 square metres w- was really tricky. So they brought in a, a dispensation to allow for it. So in the last probably 2013, 2014, we saw a real surge of developers wanting to buy, whether it was just a simple uh, 20,000 square metre block um, that they could cut down the middle and sell the land, or whether it was something a little bit more aggressive where you've got the R40 zoning. So saw a wave, not dissimilar to Willoughby. Willoughby was probably a little bit more aggressive, but a wave of single level, three by two dwellings um, in a triplex type setup. And we've now just sort of got to the end of that first wave of them and have a really good snapshot of how that product was taken by the area. How much money they made. How much have they made? Yeah, um, that, well, that would have been one of the things you would have started to have a look yeah, at look, well. Yeah, look, absolutely. I, I think that the, the take-home message with those developments was that most developers um, got the product slightly wrong in terms of what an active downsizer or a professional couple wanted. And so the next wave that we see, although you'll have some developers who are a little bit gun shy from the experience, will be a, a focus on different aspects of the home without going into too much detail. Give me the detail. Better living areas. Um, bigger living areas? Bigger living areas, two living areas ideally. It's really hard to get it all in a, a dwelling that's got 150 square metres of living space on a 200 square metre block, but you know, not the need to have four bedrooms. Uh, two or three, um, two living areas uh, and really, really good quality appliances because they've got high expectations. Well, they yeah. come from a million dollar house. They've just sold the family home in, in a neighbouring suburb that, that, that uh, was worth $1.3 million and, yeah. and this is a, a very conscious downsizing yeah. process. They, yeah. they expect to get some real quality out of their, yeah. the next 20 years of their life. Yeah. So the, the subdivision side of Melville if you drive around and you don't know the area, you'd be stunned at, at how many new dwellings there are. We've only got very specific pockets of high-density developments on Birdwood Road, some sections through Challenger Place, um, some sections of Coleman Crescent um, and Bridges Road. And they're the areas that have gone to R40 or R60 where you do see a few split-level developments. Have seen any boutique apartments? Yeah, we've had um, a, a really a couple of really good developments that have 
pretty much sold now um, through through Melville on the upper reaches through Bridges Road and Birdwood. Um, price point wise, varying anywhere from four hundred thousand for a, a one better to a few years ago six fifty seven hundred for a, a three by two, and now closer to six. Were these taken up quite well by the community in terms of both the uh, objection to having apartments, but also time on the market? Uh, no, there's a lot of objection, like there is with any um, leafy, tightly held suburb. That's why a, 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 you know, a redevelopment program is never going to get pushed through Apple Cross because everyone's very precious about their Truman Show existence. But areas like uh, Melville, you're going to have some resistance, but less of it. Um, a lot of them were sold off the plan, and lucky them. Yeah, lucky, well, lucky developers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've definitely seen in the last six to 12 months uh, a tightening of the last few remaining ones and a, you know, certainly a, a tougher market to move apartments in. The side-by-side, is that going to be a big push, do you think, for the next five to 10 years of just a whole bunch of higher quality two-story houses starting to come through? Yeah, look, our typical frontage for the full blocks is 20 metres, um, so 10 metres per street front dwelling. It's a perfect block for these developments. Yeah, look, definitely buyers, I think, prefer 12 or 14 across the front because it means they can create some better, wider living spaces, but it's just now the norm. So buyers buying a block or an existing dwelling through Melville are just just used to a 10-metre frontage. Um, And the builders, to their credit, have got a lot better with, you know, how they approach those blocks. So I don't see that changing. Our frontages, are 90% of them are 20 metres across the front, so that's only going to continue. Median house price? What is it? Median house price uh, last time I looked was around seven fifty. Uh, it's been. <laughs> it's not an easy one for you when I ask you what you're going to do with that money in Melville. Yeah, look, ironically, there's not actually a lot that you can buy for seven fifty. I know that sounds odd, but um, you know, th- there's a lot in that sort of eight to nine mark, and there's quite a lot in that six to seven mark, which obviously means that we end up with this median price of mid sevens. But if I had seven fifty at the moment, look, I'd probably be waiting for that. 820 square meter block um, with the three by one that um, some elderly residents have looked after really well that maybe isn't in the best part of Melville but in a really solid part and look to land bank uh, because that sort of product in in really buoyant times is you know we've seen them fly at the door for high eights. Are they a development potential block at any point? Oh, down the track certainly I, I'm sure that at some point the city of Melville will roll through another zonal change at the moment the nice thing about those blocks is that they can't be split. <laughs> Michael Jennings Thank you very much for one of our best conversations, I think, on suburbs. This is an agent who knows his stuff. And as you guys know, every week we get the number one agents in. Uh, never said this before, actually. I'm very impressed with just the level of understanding of the people that live here, but also the zoning, what's going on, the developers. Uh, thank you very much. I look forward to having you in for another chat and hopefully on another suburb, Mike. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!